come back Your dreams were your ticket out Welcome back To that same old place that you laughed about Well, the names have all changed since you hung around But those dreams have remained and they've turned around Who'd have thought they'd lead ya? Who'd have thought they'd lead ya? to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode number 90 where we go back Back to the the past past. and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or pick us up from iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and up your nose with a rubber hose. Oh! Hey! What do we got this week, Chris? <laughs> this week we're going to be uh, going DC TV. We're going to check out Welcome Back, Kata, number one. Cover date of November 1976. Story title is So Long, Kata. Written by Elliot S. Magan. <laughs> with art by Jack Spalling and Bob Oskna. Uh, edited by Joe Orlando. Cover price, 30 cents American. Ooh, it's almost as cheap as watching it for free on television. Almost. Uh, so we'll start with our bios, and we've never talked about the great Elliot S. Magan, I don't think, in detail. No, uh, we haven't. He was born November 14th, 1950, in Brooklyn, New York, and after having his first prose story published when he was only 17, he'd break into comics at the ripe old age of 19. While a junior at Brandeis University in Waltham, Massachusetts, Magan was tasked with writing a term paper on the history of media. He'd ask a TA if it would be okay for him to include a comic book script as part of his paper in order to illustrate how comics can be a viable political tool. He was given the thumbs up, and so he wrote an original Green Arrow story, story called What Can One Man Do? Uh, he got a B-plus because the TA was uh, the understanding that Magan was actually going to write and draw the comic. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is quite a feat, uh, even for your college paper. But uh, certainly, an annoyed Magan would go on to send the script to Carmine Infantino, the then publisher of DC Comics, and he'd then receive a letter from Julius Schwartz requesting he try his hand at writing some of DC's other characters. He even bought that Green Arrow story, and after it was shortened to 13 pages, down from 20. What can one man do? Was drawn by Neil Adams and appeared in Green Lantern Green Arrow number 87, December 1971, January 1972, cover date which is also notable as being the first appearance of Jon Stewart. Mm-hmm. Look at that. Uh, Ma- Magan, along with fellow writer Carrie Bates, would actually appear in a two-part Justice League of America story. This was issues 123 through 124, October to November 1975. Uh, in the story, they messed around with a duplicate of the Cosmic Treadmill and somehow delivered the pair to DC's Earths 1 and 2. Of the story, Magan claims that he and Bates set a record, writing the entire 24-page script, this is for issue number 124, in around two hours. Hey! They were, they were given the job in the morning and uh, had it done before, just after lunch or something like that. I'm sure the editor liked that. <laughs> Julie was cool. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, Magan would go on to uh, be one of the uh, main Superman writers during the late Bronze Age, including an imaginary story in Superman number 300, this is June, number, June 1976 cover date, and this would feature Superman arriving on Earth in the then-present day. This story has been cited as an inspiration for Mark Miller's Superman Red Star, that came, Red Sun, that came out in 2003. 
his contributions to the Superman mythos include Superboy Prime, who is, of course, the Superman Superboy who lives on our Earth, mm-hmm. as well as LexCorp, which, uh, you know, Lex was mainly a, sci- a weird scientist back then. Yeah, so, he became uh, a, a, you know, a, owned a corporation, a businessman. A businessman, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, Magan would remain fairly prolific contributor to DC Comics outside of the Superman books as well. He wrote stories for Batman Family. Uh, I think he was the actual, actually the initial writer on Batman Family. Oh, yeah. And uh, he also did the book we'll be discussing in a little bit. Uh, he would do some work at Marvel, including 1977's adaptation of the Iliad. That's the ancient Greek epic poem usually attributed to Homer. Uh, he also did uh, Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man number 16 in March 1978 cover. An Incredible Hulk number 230, December 1978 cover. His final Superman story was featured in Superman number 420. This is June 1986 cover date, just a few months before the post-crisis reimagining. Uh, Magan would serve as an editor for DC Comics between the years of 1989 and 1991. Outside of comic books, uh, Magan has written several novels featuring Marvel and DC characters, as well as an adaptation for DC's Kingdom Come event. Uh, Magan's also been rather active in the world of politics. Uh, he first ran for office in 1984. It was an unsuccessful bid in the New Hampshire primary, second con- congressional district for the U.S. House of Representatives. He was edged out by Larry Converse with 41.59% of the vote to Magan's own 33%. Post-election, his campaign was sued by the Federal Election Commission for failure to submit a quarterly report. He'd also run for the seat of the New York Assembly in 1990 and lose out only receiving 33.74 of the vote. He toyed with the idea of running one more time. On May 21, 2007, he announced his bid for the 2008 Democratic Party nod for California's 24th Congressional District seat. However, on February 1, 2008, he let it be known that he changed his mind. Probably some <laughs> figures came in to help him along with Maybe. that. Maybe. Now, did, did he run as uh, Elliot? S. Magan, that might have meant turned everything in an exclamation. You figure, point. right? Yeah, I would hope that would so. Be a smart I would thing. really hope so. Uh, <laughs> Magan is known for punctuating his middle initial with an exclamation point uh, rather than a period. And about that, he explains, "I got into the habit of putting exclamation parts at the uh, exclamation marks at the end of sentences instead of periods because reproduction on pulp paper was so lousy. So once, by accident, when I signed a script, I put the exclamation point after my S because I was just used to going." to the that end of the typewriter at the time. And Julie Schwartz saw it, and before he told me, he goes into the production room and issues a general order that any mention of Elliot Magan's name will be punctuated with an exclamation mark rather than a period from now until eternity. And so that's pretty cool. And it's, it's, <laughs> that's cool that it was just an effect of the crummy printing of the time. Of the times. The, the yep. per- periods would get so, sort of lost in the uh, pulp sometimes. And when you, <laughs> Especially the Charlton comics, right? With those thin oh, yes, yeah. Absolutely. So, sometimes you don't know what the punctuation is, but uh, he won a couple of awards. He got the Inkpot Award in 2013 and the Bill Finger Award for Excellence in Comic Book Writing in 2016. Yes. Now, on the other side of the table, we got Jack Spalling, born June 21st, 1916 in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. He was moved to the United States as a youngster and was raised in New Orleans. He received art training at the Arts and Crafts Club in New Orleans and would later attend the Corcoran? Corcoran? Corcoran, okay. Sure. Uh, The Corcoran School of Art in Washington, D.C. He worked as a gag cartoonist for the New Orleans Item Tribune. 
1941, he, along with William Lass, created Hap Hopper, Washington correspondent for United Features Syndicate. Uh, Sparling remained as artist until 1943, at which time he was succeeded by Al Plastino. Uh, his next strip was Clairvoyant, which premiered very on clever, May. Very clever. Isn't it? Very <laughs> clever. Uh, which uh, premiered on May 10th, 1943, and would run until 1948 in New York's PM newspaper. In the 1950s, Sparling moved into the kind of comics we usually talk about, uh, and had stints with several of the big name publishing houses of the time. Yeah, from the 50s through the 70s, Sparling would contribute art for. Charlton Comics on the title Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, and The Cher D. Flower feature in Sick Magazine. And then in <laughs> Classics <laughs> Illustrated, he, he contributed to Robin Hood and also Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. I, whenever I think of Classics Illustrated, Chris, I just think, like, well, someone had to do them, right? Like, it's just like, right? <laughs> it was just a natural outcropping of, of the whole media, you know? But even though they were boring, it was like, well, you know, they had to be there. Sure. Uh, for Gold Key, he did Gold Key. Sorry, he did Tiger Girl with Jerry Siegel, Microbots, which was a toy tie-in. He did adaptations for other television shows like Family Affair, Outer Limits, Twilight Zone, and Adam Twelve. I uh, hope he doesn't get typecast as a TV adapt- adaptation guy. You might, have to, you might have to watch himself there. Yeah. Uh, now for Dell Comics, he did biographical comics uh, for uh, Adlai Stevenson, Lyndon B. Johnson, and Barry Goldwater. Over at DC Comics, he did the Secret Six. He did the Eclipso feature in House of Secrets, and the Unknown Soldier feature in Star Spangled War Stories. He also co-created the, the House of Mystery host Kane with Bob Haney. Uh, he did some Challenges of the Unknown, and the book we're going to discuss today. And just a little note on. The artwork in the book, I mean, it looks like good caricatures of the characters from the show. Absolutely, yeah. So it's obvious this is, you know, when you look at his history of doing this realistic work in these biographical comics, uh, this is why, you know, this is he, he's not a bad artist. He's been around the block. He knows how to draw a uh, face. So we'll put a bow on Sparling here because there isn't that much more to say after this. He did in the 80s. He did some work for Marvel Comics, including stints on Ghost Rider and two late 80s issues of Marvel Comics Presents. And he passed away February 15th, 1997. Now, before we get into the comic, we need to discuss what was going on in the air at the time. That was the DC explosion. Now, we covered this way back in our very first episode of Weird Comics History. It's uh, known as Weird Comics History, the first one in the archives. Uh, We also recently compiled that into our sixth box set at weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com. And, you know, we did already talk about it, but... We're going to talk about it again right now. Sure. <laughs> now, in 1976, Jeanette Kahn is brought into DC Comics as publisher. She takes over for Carmine Infantino, who'd been promoted till he couldn't be promoted no more. Exactly. They couldn't make him, <laughs> they couldn't make him the czar of him DC God Comics. Emperor, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so Kahn, a Harvard graduate, founded several magazines prior to making the move to DC, including Kids, Dynamite, which was a scholastic uh, magazine, and Smash. She found herself taking over D.C. at a time when price increases were happening in rapid succession in the industry. In order to uh, attempt to stave off fan backlash, she would increase the page count of D.C.'s offerings, attempting to prove that their readers were getting more value for their money. This would result in either lengthened stories or inclusion of backups. In a publishorial entitled Onward and Upward, which ran in several DC comics of the time, Khan would write, being in a more profitable format for a retailer, our comics should be a little easier to find. Most harder-to-find comics will get better distribution. 
Now, also, she was behind the DC explosion, uh, as there was not yet a direct market and very few comic specialty stores. Uh, comics were being sold primarily at newsstands, convenience stores, pharmacies, you know, in public, mm-hmm. where they, they don't exist anymore. Right. Uh, now, with the theory that expanding the number of titles produced would increase the likelihood that their wares would be part of a newsagent's book order, because as, we, as we'd mentioned in the past, uh, you know, the, the newsagents would order, like, the big three or four books and right. then just... Fill in the back end. Fill in the rest with whatever you got, and they often had no. As a matter of fact, often the distributor would set the the number of comics they got because they. Anyway, it's a long story. We'll get into it. Yes, (laughs) we will get into it for sure. (laughs) Now, this was an attempt to more or less flood the market with DC branded books, Uh, perhaps comparable to today's glut of variant covers appearing on shelves, which broaden the amount of retail real estate a particular publisher owns any given week at your local comic shop. Well, 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 someone's found out the secret. Uh, <laughs> from 1975 through 1978, DC Comics would add 57 new titles to their output, including new concepts, new characters, a few new lines, and some returning retitled or repurposed books from the past. There was the Adventure line, which included Claw the Untamed, which ran from 1975 to 76 and then came back again in 78. Beowulf, Slayer of Dragons, ran from 75 to 76. Hercules Unbound ran from 75 to 77. Justice Inc., 1975. Kong the Untamed, 75 through 76. Stalker, 1975 through 76. Tor, 1975 through 1976. (laughs) Warlord, 1976, then was canceled after the second issue and brought back a few months later. And actually lasted quite a little while for that one. Lasted, uh, yeah, lasted a very long time uh, into the triple digits. That's right. Uh, Mystery Tales was another line of books, and that was going to include Doorway to Nightmare in 1978, Secrets of Haunted House in 1975 to 1978, and Tales of Ghost Castle in 1975. Mm-hmm. Uh, the DC TV line featured Isis from 1976 through 1978, Shazam, uh, 1976 through 78, Super Friends was launched in 1976 and had a little bit longer of a run. Yeah. Also, the book we're going to discuss in a few minutes. Welcome back, Hotter ran from 1976 through 1978. I'll tell you, Chris, one of those shows is not like the other. I don't know. I can't put, <laughs> can't put my finger on it, but one of them is just sticking out for me. I don't know. Uh, I don't think ever showed up in, well, in Super Friends. Uh, he should have, but I don't think he ever did. Now, uh, for completion's sake, the returning titles included Teen Titans from 76 to 78, Metal Men from 1976 to 1978, all-Star Comics, 1976-78. Aquaman, which was formerly Adventure Comics. This was his first self-titled book, right? Uh, 1977-78. The Challenges of the Unknown, 77-78. DC Special, from 1975 to 1977. Showcase, 1977-78. Young Love, 1976-1977. There's also Black Hawk from 1976 to 1977, Green Lantern, co-starring with Green Arrow, that was launched in 1976, The Tarzan Family, formerly Korax, Son of Tarzan from 1975 to 1976, Return of the New Gods from 1977 to 1978, and Mr. Miracle, that was also 77 to 78. Now, other explosion books included Black Lightning from 77 to 78, Firestorm the Nuclear Man, which ran in 1978, Steal the Indestructible Man, 1978. 
Shade the Changing Man, 1977 through 78. A lot of men, a lot of men running around, yeah. Uh, Karate Kid, not the one you're thinking of from 1976, (laughs) 1978. Probably not the other one you're thinking of either. Uh, (laughs) Freedom Fighters, 1976 to 1978. Richard Dragon, Kung Fu Fighter, 75 to 77. Blitzkrieg, 1976. And Cobra with a K, 1976 to 1977. As a Secret Society of Supervillains from 76 to 78. Star Hunters, 77 to 78. The Joker had his own uh, short-lived series from right. 75 to 76. Uh, Man Bat had an even shorter run right. in I, 1976. I think they even made six issues that Man Bat They made run. two. Two, there you go. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, one of my favorite series, First Issue Special, ran from 1975 through 1976. It's amazing they haven't come back with that, because that's you know, a run of it's all number a, one yeah. issues. It's like uh, they're waiting to make money on that. Absolutely. Uh, there was even a handful of books that would only run one issue. Sherlock Holmes came out in 1975. Dynamic Classics came out in 1978, and I guess that said everything I had to say about Dynamic yes. Classics. <laughs> uh, Battle Classics, 1978, and Army at War, 1978. So uh, why do so many of these books end in 1978, anyway? Well, we got to give them some reason to check out that episode of Weird Comics History, but something did happen. Yes, that's the first one available in the archives. Now, we say all of this just to paint the picture of just how weird the mid to late 70s were at DC Comics, and how ultimately someone had Welcome Back Cotter, the comic book, come across <laughs> their desk, and what's more, lit the green light for it to become a thing that we're actually holding in our hands right now. It's, it's amazing when you really think about it, but... Uh, <laughs> Isn't it? Obviously... More than it, one person had to be behind this. There was, you know, obviously they were, you know, really trying any old thing to get more product out on the shelves, and this was just another thing. And uh, as we'll find, uh, initially it was quite popular. So, mm. talk about Welcome Back, Connor. What is this? Some people listening to the show might be wondering, and I don't blame them. We'll tell you all about it. Uh, Welcome Back, Connor was a sitcom on ABC which ran for four seasons from September 9th, 1975 to May 17th, 1979. It was recorded in front of a live studio audience, which was more regular then, but somewhat unusual to do. Uh, the show starred comedian Gabe Kaplan, who played the sweat hog turned teacher, Gabe Cotter. He returned to his alma mater, James Buchanan High School in Brooklyn, New York, to teach remedial history to a current generation of sweat hogs. This was what the class called themselves, because why not? Uh, this included <laughs> Vinnie Barbarino, played by a pre grease but still looking pretty greasy, John Travolta. And he sort of is the unofficial leader of the sweat hogs. Yes, we got Freddie Boom Boom Washington, who was played by Lawrence Hilton Jacobs. Uh, Freddie received his Boom Boom nickname from his bassy beatboxing. And in one episode, he'd become a radio disc jockey under the tutelage of another former sweat hog, Wally the Wow, who was played <laughs> by George Carlin. Uh, Juan Epstein. That's uh, Juan Luis Pedro Filippo de Huevos Epstein. Okay, of course. This uh, Puerto Rican <laughs> Jew was played by Robert Heggies. And he would commonly bring notes to class in order to get out of doing assignments, all signed by Epstein's mother. And rumor has it there's actually a parallel universe where he was known as one Epstein. Oh, really? Well, if there's, yeah. let's see if, if they ever did an Earth 2 version of this. We'll find out. <laughs> and, of course, we have Arnold Horshack, played by the late Ron Polillo. And this is the fellow with the irritating honking laugh, which I will do my best to uh, emulate <laughs> later on this episode. Uh, now, he would later reveal that this laugh was based 
on the sounds his father made while he was dying of lung cancer, which uh, really wow. puts a dark spin on that, doesn't it? Ooh, that is rough, boy. Okay, I guess use mm-hmm. everything you got in the old uh, entertainment. Yeah. Now, Horshack was also the Night Stalker, right? That was the guy? Yes. yes. Right, okay. Uh, are we going to mention Bo De La Bar? No, that, that season never happened. Yeah, I agree. That would no Because the series really only had a couple of good seasons. Uh, mm-hmm. Early on, the show faced a bit of criticism for its portrayal of both teachers and juvenile delinquents. The ABC affiliate in Boston, which was WCVB-TV, actually refused to air it at first for the first two or three episodes, I believe. Mm-hmm, I think so. Yeah. Uh, now, halfway through the run, and, and once things actually seemed to be rolling and, and good, uh, the show got snake bit. <laughs> John Travolta would hit it big with Grease and Saturday Night Fever, so he was limited. Um, other ABC programs were added to the uh, to the lineup, such as Happy Days spinoff Mork and Mindy, and uh, that was given higher priority to the network by the network. Uh, also, contract disputes arose between Kaplan and the executives, leading to him becoming a guest star in his own show. Um, to uh, to fix that up, they had Julie Cotter, who was Gabe's on-screen wife, portrayed by Marcia Strassman. She'd uh, start working at the school as a secretary and occasionally fill in as a teacher. Yeah, taking up some of his lines that he wasn't going to yeah. be there to say. Yeah, she uh, did a she did a even worse Groucho Marx. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> uh, the show was Mercy Killed in 1979, with plans of spinning off a newly married Arnold Horshack. Working title was Rich Man, Poor Man, Horshack, which really rolls right off the tongue. That's a be- yeah. beautiful title. Uh, <laughs> now the series theme song, Welcome Back, which we heard at the top of this episode, was written and performed by John Sebastian of the Love and Spoonful and even hit number one on the Billboard Top 100 in May 1976. It's worth noting that the show was originally going to just be called Cotter, but it was actually changed to fit the lyrics to the song, not the other way around. So uh, he couldn't find anything to rhyme with Cotter, and I'm like, Otter? Uh, (laughs) Hello, it's right there. (laughs) It is right there. It's part of the name. (laughs) Really, it's it's really obvious anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Now, uh, with with us laying the groundwork and setting the table, let's get right into Welcome Back, Cotter number one. Now, the cover features a yellow background, which for some reason DC did a lot. Yeah. Uh, or well, like uh, red, we noticed, right? And I yeah. Guess DC would like the yellow. I don't know. It's just like these flat colors. It's weird. Uh, now, the, the the cover features Mr. Cotter explaining the scene that's going on in the background to Mr. Woodman. Now, the scene in question is Freddie Boom Boom Washington dunking a basketball into a garbage can held aloft by Arnold Horshack, who, by the way, is completely making love to the camera, isn't he? That, yes, that face he's making to the camera. Absolutely, yeah. It's very face-melting there. Uh, now, Epstein is in the background tossing a paper airplane, while Vinnie Barbarino has a sweet young thing sitting on his lap while he reads from a remedial coloring book. <laughs> uh, we learn that this issue comes packed with a bonus. Everything you wanted to know about Gabriel Kaplan. But we're afraid to ask? Well, I'm still afraid, but uh, we're going to press on regardless. I don't know how much I wanted to know, but I guess here we go. We'll find out. (laughs) Uh, We open up with Gabe and Julie Cotter about to have breakfast. And Julie goes, up and at him, Gabe. Breakfast ready. Gabe says, morning again, and you want to put, put breakfast in my mouth when my tongue feels like it's growing a mustache. Is is that a joke? I think it was supposed to be a joke, yeah. No, no I, I think Gabe might need to brush his teeth a little bit more often if his <laughs> feels like his tongue is covered with hair. Yeah, really, dude. Uh, yeah, before bed, at least. Yeah. Uh, outside, they're demolishing a, a building with a wrecking ball. It might be the Cotter's very building. It's not really very clear in this <laughs> uh, scene. 
You figure they'd like clear the street before swinging a wrecking ball at a building, but no, uh, it's fine. Just don't walk under the falling brick. That's all. Yeah, well, they did put one street closed sign up, which a kid is leaning on, but uh, <laughs> uh, doesn't really do much for the people inside the building. But what are you gonna do? So inside the apartment, chunks of ceiling fall into Gabe's cereal. Wait a minute, that was the breakfast he was woke up for? Really? You know, when somebody wakes you up with a breakfast is ready, I'd expect something hot. Seriously, you know, breakfast is yeah, ready, you're, pour you're... yourself a bowl of cereal, there it is. <laughs> your, your cereal's gonna get cold. <laughs> uh, Gabe walks over to the open window, and he drops the chunk of ceiling outside. He says, look at this apartment, look at this neighborhood, this is a way to live? The dishes rattle, the walls buckle, and now there's an atomic testing site next door. Another chunk of ceiling falls, this time right into Gabe's coffee cup. Another bullseye! And now Julie grabs the phone to give a call to the building superintendent who arrives minutes later. I'm the new Superman! You're the people with the broken ceiling? No, an interior decorator told us dust was in this year. Oh, now the, uh, <laughs> the super and his men climb up on the table to get a better look at the ceiling. Gabe says, hey, no wonder these guys got here so fast. They're the drugs who keep who are hanging out on the stoop. And Julie goes, this Superman isn't bird or a plane. He's a kitchen table walker. Now, that 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 has to be a joke, right? That's not really, because he's not actually another animal called a kitchen stable walker. I so. think so, but uh, I, I don't want to commit. All right, all right. I, uh, <laughs> it might be a joke. We'll leave it at that. Uh, now, Gabe and Julie uh, throw a few more one-liners at one another before our man realizes that he's about to be late for work. He rushes out the door and smacks right into the mailman, Dagwood Bumstead <laughs> style. Uh, amid a mess of mail go that's gone flying, Cotter spies one addressed to him from the Board of Education. What could they want? I haven't been absent this year, except once, and Julie wrote me a note. Now, those notes only work when they're from your mother. Doesn't, doesn't he know anything? I know, really. Uh, he hops on the bus and prepares to read his missive. Yes, the note reads, Dear Mr. Carter, we have duly considered your application to transfer to the east side of Manhattan and have decided to accept. Accept? They accepted me to transfer schools. I just sent the application in an off chance, and they accepted me. He's so excited, he kisses the old lady sitting next to him on the bus. And she says, well, I never. <laughs> the old lady then proceeds to beat Cotter back with her umbrella. Masher, molester, pervert. Sorry, lady, I got carried away. My school's across the street. Otherwise, I'd stay and talk to you some more. Mm, that could have been fun. Yeah. Uh, Gabe enters James Buchanan High School and is he excitedly clicks his heels. Actually clicks his heels. He thinks yes. to himself, I'm in heaven on cloud nine. Inside his classroom, Kata reads the rest of the Board of Ed's note. And so, if you will report for physical examination as soon as possible, we will be able to consummate matters in this... Con consummate? Yeah, I guess uh, they really... His physical fitness might be important when it comes to sealing this deal. You know, they want to make sure uh -huh. he has stamina. You know what I'm talking about? I think maybe. <laughs> <laughs> now, his reading is interrupted because suddenly there's a curse splat against the classroom supply closet. But hark, was that the sound of reality slabbing my face, or...? He opens a door to find Vinnie Barbarino making time with Rosalie Hotsy Totsy. Barbarino, Rosalie, what are you doing in my supply closet? I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious that at the very least they were making out, right? They're definitely not taking out any supplies, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Uh, Hotsy says, Vinnie and I were discussing detente with China. 
And Gabe says, get out. Homeroom's not for another 15 minutes. And so Vinny and Hotsy Totsy come out of the closet and then leave the classroom where they're joined by fellow sweat hogs, Freddy Boom Boom Washington and Arnold Horshack. And uh, Vinny and Hotsy think that Mr. Carter might be sick. Ebony Barbarino says, he was crackers, I tell you. He was reading some kind of letter, see? Something about a physical examination. And Hotsy says, yeah, I think he's sick. Give him, I gave him a straight line about detente. He didn't even have a comeback. Then Arnold Horshack goes, detente? Ain't that another name for an Italian tent? Now that had, that was definitely a joke, right? Did you laugh? Well, uh, you got a point there. It's true. Uh, Vinny says, listen, this is serious. I think Mr. Cat is sick of something, and he looks pretty worried like he's thinking about nothing else. I mean, we really got to be cool with them today. Pass the word. And so, when Cotter's about to take roll call, he is shocked to find his class of sweat hogs. Sans Juan Epstein. Oh, I hear it's beautiful there this time of year. It is. It's lovely. Uh, they're all sitting at their desks, ready to learn. Yeah, they all say, Good morning, Good morning Mr. Mr. Carter. Carter. McGabe says, I'm going deaf. You're all here, quiet, well-behaved. You're a mistake. You're not my sweat hogs. He continues to take roll. Everyone seems to be here except Epstein. Where is he? Mr. Carter, Epstein is absent. Uh, yeah, no kidding. Yeah. On account of he had to rotate the bumper guards on his car. <laughs> See, at that time I did laugh. <laughs> uh, Mr. Carter begins his lesson on the Magna Carta and is, is shocked <laughs> to find that his class knows all about it and even did their homework the night before. So, do they just pretend not to know things to be jerks? Uh, do, do they just like being in remedial social yeah. studies class? Do they, do they really do their homework every night and just not turn it in? Yeah, clearly you didn't attend New York City's public schools for all your formative years. That's exactly what you do, Chris. <laughs> you, you, you do all the work, but you have to play dumb in class or you get beaten up. That's how it yeah. works. Things were different in Long Island, I, I guess, guess so. <laughs> where I went to high school. <laughs> now, uh, before we can find those answers to those questions, the assistant principal, Mr. Woodman, gleefully enters the room. Yeah, Gabe Kaplan says, Mr. Woodface, I, uh, I mean, Mr. Woodman. Was that a joke? I mean, it's pretty lazy, even for a sitcom, I gotta say. <laughs> Woodface? Come on. Yeah. Uh, Woodman goes, you're leaving, Carter. I just got a call about scheduling your medical examination. Congratulations! Now the sweat hogs are confused. They think they think Woodman is celebrating the fact that Cotter is dying. Well, that might answer our questions about whether or not they were just pretending to be dumb, right? Yeah, they're dumb for sure. Uh, they lunge for Woodman. Yeah, he dives behind Gabe and goes, "Cotter, what's going on here? Call these sweat hogs off! Back, back, I say! Cut it out! Will you guys explain what the devil's wrong with you today?" You got to them, Carter. You and your lax discipline. I'm getting a strict disciplinarian in here after you transfer. To which Horshack goes, Transfer? You mean you're not dying, Mr. Carter? And Boom Moon says, Why would you want to transfer? Where are you going? And Carter immediately blames the entire transfer debacle on his wife. Oh, that, that definitely won't backfire, That's right? Great news. Great, great move there. Yeah, uh, and so we jump ahead, and uh, in order to keep Cotter at Buchanan and not face the wrath of Woodman's proposed strict disciplinarian, the sweat hogs decide to brainstorm. Vinny says, why don't we get Epstein to steal Cotter's car? Boom Boom says, he doesn't have a car. Well, 
let's get Epstein to steal his subway tokens. I feel like poor Epstein might be getting a little typecast yeah, at this is, point. Is Don Rickles one of the writers for this show? I don't, I don't know. Uh, it's weird. <laughs> poor Shaq suggests, how about if we lock him in the classroom and starve him into staying? Well, Vinny says, that's no way to do it. Kata's got to want to stay. Not that Kata's so great. But think of who Woodman would send to replace him. We can't come up with anything, but I know who to ask. Next we know, the sweat hogs are on the fire escape outside the Cotter apartment, watching Judy Cotter, uh, Julie Cotter attempt to vacuum with her busted rig. That's a pretty strange fetish, but okay. That's, a little bit. Uh, everyone got their thing. Also, also a little creepy when we look at it through 2018 eyes, just a bunch of teenagers watching a woman vacuum. And, I, think it's, I think it's creepy through 1978 eyes, to be honest with you. <laughs> the, the, eyes, the eyes, it's creepy no matter what era. Uh, the boys then head off and procure a new vacuum cleaner for the domestic Mrs. Cotter to procure. They ring her bell and... Arnold Horshek goes, Hi there! Hey, that's Freddy's line. It is. Boom Boom says, Mrs. Cotter, we are going to make you a happy woman. I, uh, hmm. Uh, take this vacuum cleaner, please. Okay, yeah. that could have got. It could have got very that. different, yeah. <laughs> Vinny says, we got it out of going out of business sale. They've been going out of business for five years. We just helped them a little. <laughs> now, let's flip back to the cover and check this. Yep, there's a Comics Code Authority seal, all right, I guess, so. <laughs> I, I guess the 1971 relaxing of the code allows for uh, shoplifting for comedic effect. Also, cutting class, and uh, just so long as they didn't title it "Weird Welcome Back, Cotter," I think it would be fine. That's that. That would be a problem. <laughs> now, uh, Vinny helps himself to the contents of the Cotter fridge, or he would if it wasn't empty. Now I know why you're unhappy here, Mrs. Cotter. You're not eating right. You got no Coke. The, the soda, certainly, right? No Twinkies. Uh, what do you guys do for food? That's rhetorical, right? Not not a proposition. Yeah, right? I don't know. <laughs> what do you do for food? <laughs> the Sweathogs volunteer to go grocery shopping for Julie, and she hands them $10 for the grub. 30 minutes later, they return with a whole lot of food. Yeah, Julie goes, that's an awful lot of groceries for $10. And Horshack says, yuck, yuck, yuck. But I think it's supposed to be... <laughs> yeah, I think so. Which uh, is a, a very sad thing to hear now. Now that, that we know, know where it comes from, I don't ever want to hear it again. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, Julie goes, Vinny, Freddy, that's got to be nearly $100 worth of groceries. Boom Boom says, we know where to shop. Here's your change. $9 out of 10 How? Shh, don't ask questions you don't want the answers to, man. Right? I'm telling you, just take your $9. Uh, <laughs> she asks what the boys are up to, and they finally come clean. Mr. Cotter says he's leaving us because you're unhappy here. We want to convince you you're happy. And then Barbarino gives us, like, the dreamiest (laughs) look ever, doesn't he? It really is. He's like, he's in my soul right now. I almost want to, like, slap some Vaseline over the lens and really soften (laughs) it up here. I mean, it's it's still a comic book, but he's looking at us very sweetly. Uh, He says... It's not that we think he's such a swell guy, you understand? It's that we don't want to go through the hassle of breaking in a whole new teacher, you see. He talks about transferring every few weeks. He's probably taking the idea seriously today because he had a bad morning. Or maybe because, you know, he had his transfer actually approved today? That could be a reason. Could be, could be. But if you really want him to stay, hand me the phone book. 
So the Sweathogs trip over themselves to fetch the phone book. Yes, and as Julie flips through the pages and lets her fingers do the walking, she reads, let's see, Orangutan, Paxton, Peston, here's his number, Peavy, B. Wayne Peavy. You think the uh, B stands for Bruce? Almost. I like to think so, yeah. (laughs) Now, the next morning, Cotter arrives at school, and he's in such a good mood that he's singing. Oh, what a beautiful morning. He's also, if the color separations or lack thereof are to be believed, uh, wearing a onesie over his suit and his shirt and tie. Yeah, something, something weird happened there. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the sweat hogs are in position. They alert each other to Cotter's progress toward the classroom. Yes, and as he approaches, a voice comes booming from the classroom. Cotter, you're late. That voice. I know that voice. And why, it's B. Wayne Peavy, Cotter's old teacher from back when Cotter himself was a sweat hog. Get in here, Cotter. The whole class can't wait for a stray sweat hog. Cotter rushes into the room, begins to scramble through his briefcase, looking for his homework? (laughs) All right, class, please hand in last night's assignment. Problem, Cotter? Uh, maybe my little brother ate it, you think? That might have been a joke. (laughs) Uh, now, finally, halfway through a lesson on... From the looks of the map on the wall, the uh, post-Great Disaster <laughs> United States of America. Uh, this is commandy stuff here. Uh, Connor realizes that something just ain't right. Actually, it would be hilarious if this all took place in a post commandy You know, this is that like after commandy when humanity rebuilt <laughs> itself. Uh, Gabe says, may I ask you a question, Mr. Peavy? Yes, Connor? Are you really teaching an empty class, or am I in a time warp? I thought you'd never ask. And now the old pals get reacquainted. We learn that Cotter wasn't just a sweat hog, but he was the founding member. Hmm. Speaking of sweat hogs in the current the current batch there, you know, specifically, uh, Sans, Juan, Epstein are peeking in through a window. Uh, Cotter and PB decide to head out for lunch, so I guess he's going to let the students run the class, I guess. Right? I, the, the, it's homeroom, right? I just uh, walk away. I, 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 <laughs> kids, I used to cut homeroom a lot, so it's not a big deal, I guess. Sure. Now, uh, as they're walking, PV goes, So, we're having lunch together. Just like the good old days, eh, Gabe? Yeah, but only this time I won't put white horseradish in your cottage cheese. That sounds disgusting. Really? What a prank. Uh, we join Cotter and PV in the cafeteria. They reminisce about the last time they saw one another. I remember the last time I saw you. The day of my retirement party here at Buchanan High. That was a disaster if I ever saw one, but you managed to keep your cool as usual. Not such a disaster. I made it home in one piece. I've got a confession to make about the day, Mr. Peavy. No need to do that. I had a pretty good idea when the cheerleaders unrolled their little tribute. And now, in a flashback, a pair of cheerleaders rush out to with a banner to see PV off, and upon unrolling it, the message reads, Good riddance, PV." Oh, PV continues, That it was you who pulled the cutesy practical joke with the hand-painted pep rally sign. Mr. Woodman nearly swallowed his tie when he saw it. What his tie was doing in his mouth to begin with, I'll never know. Uh, PV tells Cotter he didn't really mind the practical joke and also notes that Gabe was a bit sloppy in his attempt to cover it up. I spotted you skulking up on the roof with the painted shade under your arm. Yeah, I came back the next weekend and dumped the thing in Jeepshead Bay. Nobody will ever find it there. 
Some some say it still floats there to this very day. It might have a few body parts on it, but uh, you know, it's still there. Also, why why aren't the cheerleaders implicated in this? Didn't they actually unfurl the thing? But uh, I guess it was all game (laughs) cut. It all went in their permanent record. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, (laughs) it's then that PV peels off a little bit of wisdom. It's just a matter of remembering, Gabe, that students are here to be educated, not disciplined. That should be left to the parents. Uh, by the way, do any of the Sweathogs actually have parents? Well, we know at the very least that Epstein has a mother. Right? I don't know. Yeah. Who's writing those letters? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, speaking of Epstein, when Connor returns to class, Juan has returned himself. I thought this was homeroom and Connor just had lunch. I mean, is this like, is this James Buchanan's high school, some kind of new age swing shift school where like, you can make your own schedule or something like that. Maybe, but I, I'd like to think that this is just the first appearance of Hypertime. That makes sense. Especially in a post-Commandi universe. Oh, exactly. Don't know. It's going to be crazy. <laughs> uh, so Gabe says, Epstein, you've been absent for days. I thought for sure somebody has finally put a contract out on you, which is kind of a hardcore thing to say, I think. <laughs> right? I thought you were shot. Yeah. Oh, I thought a mafia killed you, and I was going to just you know, <laughs> give you an F for the year. <laughs> Epstein replies with, uh, My great aunt died, Mr. Carter. It's all in the note. Uh, Last year it was grandmothers. This year, great aunts. Epstein, Epstein. How many years have they been taking Carter's class? This is remedial history for (laughs) for God's sake. At a certain point, you got to say, all right, this kid's not going to learn history. This is a lost cause, Four years in, we're going to have to move on. Uh, Carter heads over to the window and goes to pull down the shades, which fall to the ground with a crash. Epstein goes, <laughs> that's the funniest thing I ever seen. Hilarious, Epstein. The blind's leading the blind. I don't get the reference. I'm not sure. Is, what, is Cotter blind? But the joke, I, I don't remember him being blind. Uh, is he leading it? I don't know what's happening there. It's very strange. So the other sweat hogs immediately jump on Epstein's case. You see, he hasn't been smartened up that they're trying to get Cotter to stay at Buchanan. Juan, that wasn't a very nice thing you did to Mr. Carter. Where the heck do you get off messing over the tea, Epstein? Boom Boom says, you crazy man. Don't you know that man's going through a decision about his life? Probably, you know, seeing as the Juan's been absent for the past few days, he probably doesn't. I mean, what are you, what are you going to, like, read it on, on Carter's face? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's not, like, not going to be obvious. <laughs> he, he, and he probably doesn't follow him on Twitter either. No, so, not likely, no. <laughs> now, uh, Carter raises a hand to maintain a little bit of order. He says, peace. All right, everyone. Everything's cool as usual. Washington, help Epstein put the blinds back up. And then Cotter retrieves a, his transfer letter from his desk. Hey, what's that you're getting out of your desk, Mr. Cotter? Some unfinished business that I'm going to finish right now. And Cotter proceeds to tear the transfer letter into tiny pieces. Vinny Barbarino says, you're staying, ain't you? Ain't you? Cotter tosses the bits of paper over his head. And all the sweat cogs say, welcome, welcome back, back, Mr. Mr. Cotter. Uh... I don't think ripping up the paper actually cancels the transfer. I assume there's some legal thing here. It's a nice sentiment, oh. but... Well, you know, that is how I got out of paying my mortgage and student loans. I just, just tore them up and threw oh. them over my head. Oh, interesting. Well, I'm uh, yeah. definitely going to try that one later. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, at the Manhattan School, a classroom of students waits patiently for a teacher that will never arrive. They don't show that, though. That's off-panel. And, and some say that they sit there to this very day. <laughs> to this very day. Where's <laughs> Mr. Cotter? <laughs> 
Now we close out the book at the Cotter apartment where Gabe has a bone to pick with Julie. Julie, I've got a bone to pick with you. See? Mr. Peavy, you got in touch with him and asked him to talk to me, right? Peavy? Peavy? Wasn't he the leading man in Gidget Joins the SLA? Gidget joined the Symbionese Limber Liberation Army? Wow, the 70s really were a very strange time, I'll tell you yeah. what. And uh, Gabe says, you know what I'm talking about, you sneaky foxy. Thankfully, this flirting is interrupted by a loud crack coming from the closet. Gabe opens the door to find Barbarino and Hotsy Totsy <laughs> doing it in the pantry, which is kind of gross because that's where they keep their food. Yeah, I think we get in here anyway, but <laughs> listen, Barbarino, why don't you and Rosalie crawl behind a billboard under, or under a boardwalk like I... Like you what, Gabe Cotter? Like I used to hear about people doing. Uh, didn't they do that when you were a kid? What do you say I take you out to dinner, hey? And that's it. I don't know whatever the song would be. That's the end of it. But there's a little more in there. Now that's the end of the story, but it's not the end of the book. Because as promised, we're going to share with you everything you wanted to know about Gabriel Kaplan. It all comes on the Sweat Hog Scratchings letter page. We're going to give you the vital uh, statistics Obviously, here. I haven't gotten any letters yet. This is issue one, so this is yes, why this we're is getting an the... info dump on Gabriel Kaplan. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, now, the vital statistics include Gabriel Kaplan, birthplace, Brooklyn, New York, height, six foot one, hair, brown, birth date, March 31, weight, 171 pounds, eyes, brown. Now, the letters page does a weird job of mixing elements of Kaplan and Cotter into his personal history, <laughs> so we'll do our best to parse it out as best we can here. He was born of parents Charles and Dorothy, attended Erasmus Hall High School, right down the road from Chris's old neighborhood in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Now, after high school, he would work as a hotel bellboy in Lakewood, New Jersey, which must have been... At the very least, an unpleasant commute. I, any way you do it, the Verrazano or the Manhattan, <laughs> it sounds not good. Uh, his comedy career would soon start, and after a few bumpy outings, he was booked into the Playboy Clubs, where he found his footing. He'd appear on several talk shows, including The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. In 1974, Kaplan cut his first uh, comedy album, Holes and Mellow Rolls. And as of this issue, Kaplan lives in a West Hollywood apartment, his favorite pastimes are dating and dancing at discotheques. Oh, I wish we could see that. He is a renaissance man, folks. Dating and <laughs> dancing at discotheques. Woo! The guy's doing it all. So that was it for Welcome Back, Cotter, issue number one. Uh, not too far off from the show, I would say. It's very sitcom It yeah, really is very, very similar. I, the show, uh, maybe the joke <laughs> fell less flat, but then again, we did have a laugh track to help us through those a lot of times. It's true. Uh, it's true. But we, we, we had a good time with that. We're going to take a break here to tell you about a special event that we're part of here in May 2018. And when we come back, we're going to talk some more comics and television. It's J.L. May We're covering the Silver Age This J.L. May A comic event from Mark Wade We're crossovering a podcast There's 12 of us involved Get it in your ear holes This J.L. May 
it's not great, but it's okay. We really have to warn you, it has a controversial one. Where Mark Miller wrote the lead. But it also has some good stuff. See that style, age metal man. Challenges of the unknown. Green Lantern Flash Patrol of JLMA event is upon us once more. 2018, we're reading The Silver Age from 2001. The journey begins in the podcast Justice's First Dawn and continues in the shows Relatively Geeky, Coffee and Comics, Supermates, Waiting for Doom, Idlehead of Diablo, The Longbox Crusade, The Lantern Cast, Batgirl to Oracle, Comic Reflections, Cosmic Treadmill, The Fire and Water Podcast. Do Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. <laughs> uh, we are going to discuss a couple of different things uh, for the tail end of the broadcast here. We're going to first discuss comic book adaptations of television shows. Now, these days, we often see our favorite comics being adapted for television, and uh, don't really consider that the pendulum might swing the other way. Here are a very few, but just three, notable TV sitcoms that made the four-color jump. Now, these are going to be post-Cotter books, because uh, if we're being honest, it yeah. seemed like for a while, if you had a sitcom or TV drama, it was just expected that it, there would be a comic book tie-in, just the way it went. Yeah, there's a certain point you can pretty much open uh, an issue with TV Guide and just read out all the comic adaptations. And that's your previous guide, yeah. Uh, so we'll be talking about No Get Smart, Mission Impossible, Ben Casey, Bionic Woman, Six Million Dollar, Man from Uncle, Car 54, Where Are You, or Beverly Freaking Hillbilly's comics <laughs> coverage today. No. Uh, we're also not going to mention comic books or sci-fi properties that went live action and then crossed back into comics. Right. So no CW tie-ins, Smallville, Buffy, Star Trek, none of that stuff. No. The first one we're going to discuss is Married with Children. Now, this was a Fox sitcom that ran for 259 episodes over 11 seasons from April 5th, 1987 until June 9th, 1997. Uh, this was the first program to be, ever be aired during Fox primetime. It starred Ed O'Neill as Al Bundy, a high school football star turned shoe salesman, and uh, followed him as he dealt with his family and neighbors. Uh, this was a very different take on the normal family sitcom, which led to there being a little bit of controversy with how some of the material was received. Oh, yeah. Yes, and uh, for example, in 1989, a woman named Terry Ricolta from Bloomfield, Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, led a boycott over perceived obscenity in an episode. The episode in question, Her Cups Runneth Over, 
Now, that aired January 15th, 1989, and it featured an old man wearing a woman's garter, a mannequin dressed in S&M gear, and some other questionable-for-the-time imagery. Uh, now, Recolta's letter-writing campaign would lead to several advertisers backing out of the Married with Children business. But it would lead to several seasons of Married with Children using uh, porn stars for extra roles on their, on their <laughs> true all the time. Right? Uh, sounds like the perfect property for a comic book, doesn't it? This really seems like just the kind of thing you want to see in four-color uh, pages. Married with Children, the comic book was published by Now Comics. Now Comics was founded in 1985 by Tony C. Caputo and has an interesting story that might make for a decent episode of Weird Comics History. Uh, you know that Ecto Cooler all the cool kids like? Now Comics, Caputo Publishing Incorporated, play a part, played a part in bringing that to the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were several volumes of Married with Children comics. Volume 1 from 1990, 1991 had seven issues. That was June 1990 to February 1991 cover dates. Volume 2 went from 91 to 92, also had seven issues, ran from September 91 to April 1992 cover date. And then a six special issues... They all came out uh, between July 1992 and December 1994 cover dates. Plus, there was a three-issue Kelly Bundy miniseries. Is this the real life? Yeah, apparently uh, this came out from August 1992 (laughs) to October 1992 cover dates. We have a three-issue Married with Children flashback miniseries, which featured Al and Peg in high school. That ran from January 1993 through March 1993. A three issue, if uh, if you're ready for this. Uh, wow. <laughs> Married with Children 2099 miniseries, which featured. Uh, I know the one cover I'm thinking of has like Al in like the pun the uh, the what's it the Terminator pose with like the gun up against his face. We might this one this one we might have to do. It sounds incredible. We like might have Italian. to. Yes. <laughs> now these issues ran from June 1993 through August 1993 cover dates. A four issue Fantastic Four spoof. No, that was called the Quantum Quartet, Wow! Uh, the first issue of which was titled, Lo, There Shall Come the Bundys. Uh, this ran from October 1993 through November 1994, which is a pretty—you can imagine there was a little delay in that. Yeah. And finally, another Kelly-themed three-issue miniseries, Kelly Goes to College with a K. Now, that one wrapped it up uh, August 1994 through October 1994. Wow, so Married with Children had more issues than many of Marvel's New Universe titles. Is that what, that, that what we're learning yeah. here? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Quite a little chunk there, being a little omnibus out of that. You can have a good mm-hmm. time. <laughs> uh, another one that was a wonderful comic that I actually read as a young man was Alf. That was an NBC sitcom that had somehow managed to survive four seasons, creating 102 episodes from September 22, 1986 to March 24, 1990. The show starred a puppet of an alien life form, hence Alf, Hmm. named Gordon Shumway, who hailed from the planet Melmac and had a taste for cats. He wound up on Earth and lived with the Tanners, not those Tanners, uh, just your everyday uptight waspy family. Like Married with Children, Alf had some controversy to overcome as well. Like, for example, after a kid put his cat in the microwave, the writers had to curb the eating cat puns. Also, Mm -hmm. another kid mimicked Alf dropping an electric mixer into the bathtub in order to create a jacuzzi. Hey. <laughs> it's true. Uh, now, this program is notable for ending on a cliffhanger. 
Alf's final episode, which was March 24th, 1990, ended with Alf being abducted by scientists in a bid to get, uh, you know, <laughs> re- re- resuming right. the following season. Yep. Uh, now, this uh, it wasn't until Project Alf, a made-for-TV movie that came out February 17th, 1996, that the Alf faithful would find out what went down. And it sucked. It did. Um, it was even not, worse than the not, show. Yeah, big time. Yeah, now uh, there were there were also like a whole lot of stories about how particular the crew were about the puppet. Uh, a lot of weird, obsessive things about uh, the way the, the the puppet was shot, mm-hmm. and if it was ever shot, and nobody ever saw the bag it was kept in. It was just very weird. But uh, you know, if we ever decide to cover an Alf comic, or if anyone ever you know recommends one, we'll probably have material for days. Wait, Alf had a comic book too. Oh, yeah, that's why we're right, here. Right, um, yes. Right. <laughs> now, Alf from Marvel Comics ran for a staggering 50 issues. This is March 1998 through February 1992. There were also three annuals, the first of which is labeled as an evolutionary <laughs> war crossover. Wow. And yes, he meets the high evolutionary. In a dream sequence. Oh, fair uh, enough. <laughs> you, you see, he fell asleep while reading all the latest Marvel annuals. <laughs> Wow, that's uh, pretty impressive. I know it started when there's the Star Comics imprint. Did it? Do you know if it, it grew out of there and we became a Marvel I'm, comic? I'm guessing proper? it went to regular Marvel. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty amazing for that to even have happened. It's true. And uh, another one, another show very close to both of our hearts is Saved by the Bell. That was also an NBC sitcom that aired as part of the Saturday morning lineup from August 20th, 1989 to May 22nd, 1993. This was kind of a reboot of an earlier Disney Channel series and uh, Haley Mills' vehicle called Good Morning, Miss Bliss. The project was heavily pushed by then-president of NBC, Brandon Tartikoff, also the genius behind ALF, by the way. No, we won't hold that against him. No, no, you can't can't (laughs) do it all right. Uh, After Miss Bliss flopped out, uh, but the kids tested well, the focus would shift to feature a group of popular high school students and their principal. Uh, They also moved from John F. Kennedy Junior High School in Indianapolis Indiana to Bayside High School in Palisades, uh, Los Angeles. If any story was begging for an in-between series, that's that's the one right Definitely. there. I want to find out how they got there. Get across country. What happened? <laughs> I, I picture it like the like the Oregon Trail, where like Nikki and that other guy from uh, the old show like died of dysentery on the way. That's all day. They, they they picked up Slater as they went. You know, <laughs> yep. I, I assumed like John F. Kennedy Junior High School became a super fun toxic waste site. They all had to relocate. You know, uh, together <laughs> something like that. <laughs> No. Somebody, somebody's got to recommend one of those for us because we can go, we can go to town on that. Uh, now, Saved by the Bell would air eighty-six episode, eighty-six episodes, and a primetime movie called Saved by the Bell Hawaiian Style. That was nineteen ninety-two. From there, there'd be a pair of spinoffs. We have uh, Saved by the Bell: The College Years, which followed some of the Bayside graduates. Also, Saved by the Bell: The New Class, which gave us a look at what came next for Bayside High and Mister Belding. And eventually, the new assistant principal, Screech. Uh, they literally called him Principal Screech. I know. <laughs> messed up. And he was, so, and he was like, by that point, he was like so over the top cartoon. He was a cartoon. He was like no yeah. longer a human person. He was just totally ridiculous. It was yeah, crazy. like Urkel would look at him and be like, hey, reload it, No, the uh, primary Saved by the Bell saga would wrap up in a primetime movie. Saved by the Bell, Wedding in Las Vegas, 1994, which would feature the long-awaited nuptials between Zach Morris and Kelly Kapowski. Spoiler alert. Uh, Now, this show is definitely in our wheelhouse, and I'm sure we could discuss it for 
at least days. Yeah. But uh, we'll put a bow in it here for uh, the interest of uh, brevity. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, if anybody wants to hear us talk about Saved by the Bell, you just request that we cover... Uh... The comic book adaptations... Yes, there were more than one. Wow. Uh, first was from Harvey Comics. Probably sounds like at the very tail end of their, their existence. Yes. Uh, Saved by the Bell had a five-issue ongoing run in 1992. <laughs> Quote-unquote ongoing. Also holiday specials, one of which Chris reviewed for Weird Science DC Comics in the long ago. They're not very great, folks. No, they're not. Uh, more recently, 2014 to 2016, IDW Publishing released a Saved by the Bell collection written by Joel Seller with art by Blue Monday creator China Clugston Flores. If you're familiar with Clugston Flores, you know that this is a bit of an American manga look to it. There were These were originally released in single-issue format by Roar and Lion Forge Publishing. Uh, we haven't read it, uh, just found out about it while doing our research, actually, so we can't speak to its quality. Indeed. Now, with uh, those uh, three nuggets of uh, TV uh, gold <laughs> in our pocket, we're going to talk about TV. We're going to talk about late 70s television shows. Yeah. Um, because, uh, you know, Welcome Back, Cotter is quite a departure from, you know, like Leave at the Beaver. Absolutely. There, there, was a, there was definitely a shift. There was, there was a um, big change in 70s television that allowed these kind of, that kind of show to happen. Yeah, I think it was the it was due to the Comics Code Authority, right? Right. That was it. They, they relaxed <laughs> the, that. Everything the TV went, Code Authority. Everything went uh, wild, yeah. <laughs> Now, U.S. television underwent some big changes in the 70s. The Red Skelton Show and the Ed Sullivan Show, long-revered American institutions, were finally canceled after multi-decade spans. Skelton, Red Skelton lasted from 1951 through 1971. Ed Sullivan lasted from 1948 to 71. You know, they, they, did, lie, they did relax the code in 71. So That's that true. Might be it. That's true. Now, the, the typical family sitcom about uh, some iteration of the ideal nuclear family would give way to the Brady Bunch in 1969. Now, this is a story about a large combined family of a widow and a widower. Uh, the high-concept sitcoms like I Dream of Jeannie and Bewitched began to lose American interest, with I Dream, of Jeannie, yeah, I Dream of Jeannie ending its run in 1970 and Bewitched following just two years later. Yeah, those were considered high-concept shows because they had, like, a crazy magical premise yeah. premise to them, but it was it's, when we look at them now, we're like, that is the Just corny. thing. Yeah. Uh, but the biggest change in television right at the, at the beginning of the 70s was CBS canceling all their primetime rural comedy shows in one fell swoop in 1971. CBS, tired of being ridiculed as the Hillbilly Network, canceled the Beverly Hillbillies, Hee Haw, Green Acres, and Mayberry RFD, plus every show that had a tree in it, described by actor <laughs> Pat Buttram. Uh, although, you know, you have all those shows, there's a reason they're calling it the Hillbilly Network, folks. It's true. Uh, also, a generation of baby boomers was entering adulthood right at this moment in the early 70s and demanded television programming more reflective of their reality. Uh, this was due, at least in part, with the televising to the televising of the Vietnam War, which brought the horrors of war into American living rooms in a way that has not been done before or really has been done since. I mean, we're talking like, you would see dead people on television, you know, sure. and like a lot of gory stuff. It must have been a little weird when juxtaposed with Rowan Marfin, Martin's <laughs> laughing. You know, we now we now bring in break in through for some special explosions, you know, and then you can't get really back to uh, Ozzy and Harriet. Mm -hmm. So uh, television was transformed by what became termed as social consciousness programming, spearheaded by television producer Norman Lear. Now, one of his uh, biggest contributions to television was All in the Family. 
Cats, an American sitcom that ran on CBS for nine seasons, starting January 1971 through April 1979. The show was based on a BBC One sitcom called Till Death Do Us Part, which would air from 1965 through 75. The show starred uh, Carol O'Connor, Gene Stapleton, Sally Struthers, and Rob Reiner. And it revolves around the life of a working-class bigot, which yep. is uh, Archie, played by Carol O'Connor, and his family living in Regal Park, Queens. Now, this is the first time American audiences heard a lot of blue words and racial epithets uh, that uh, we will not repeat. Yeah, on this podcast, but you can check about yourself. I, that, I'm sure there's some reruns in the world of uh, all this. got to be right, yeah. Uh, Norman Lear also made Maud. That's a sitcom originally aired uh, on the CBS network from September 1972 until April 1978. Show stars B. Arthur as Maud Finlay, an outspoken middle-aged politically liberal woman living in suburban Tuckahoe, Westchester County, New York, with her fourth husband. Maud embraces the tenets of women's liberation, always votes for Democratic Party candidates, and advocates for civil rights and racial and gender equality. But the comedy usually revolves around people finding her to be overbearing. So, <laughs> but I mean, but you got to think about what a weird, you know, this was really the first time you've seen characters like this on television. Sure. Uh, the show was billed as a spinoff of All in the Family, and Maud was technically Edith Bunker's cousin, although she rarely ever repe- appeared on All in the Family, I think twice. Yeah. And, and that was like the first program that ever dealt with like things like abortion. Too. Absolutely. I, mean, yeah. it was, uh, I, I think that one, heavy, had, that one had a rape time. episode. I mean, mm. it, it's stuff that became more pat and like expected later. Maud was really the first one, and Mary, Mary Talbot, which we'll talk about yeah. later. Yeah, sure. Uh, first, uh, Sanford and Son, an American sitcom that ran on NBC from January '72 through March '77. The show was based on a BBC program called Steptoe and Son, and that ran from 1962 to '65, uh, followed by a second run from '70 to '74. Sanford and Son stars Red Fox as Fred G. Sanford, a widower and junk dealer, living in the Watts neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. And uh, what's, what's Demond. he? Uh, Demond, Demond yeah. yes. I was going to say Desmond, but there is no S on there. Nope. Demond Wilson as his son, Lamont. Uh, now, <laughs> besides featuring and starring many black actors, Sanford and Son name-checked a neighborhood of great conflict during the civil rights era. And you don't get more urban than Los Angeles junkyard. Except for maybe in Norman Lear's next show, which was Good Times. Maybe. That's, that's a sitcom <laughs> that aired on CBS from February 1974 to August 1979. This is television's first African-American family sitcom starring Esther Roll, John Amos, and Jimmy Walker, and a bunch of other people also. Uh, mm. The Evans family lives in a housing project in a poor black neighborhood in inner city Chicago. The project is unnamed on the show, but is implicitly the infamous Cabrini Green projects, just shown in the opening and closing credits. Though it's a build as a sitcom, the situations are not always so humorous, like no. when the father becomes addicted to heroin, or the eldest daughter is beaten by her boyfriend. Uh, even, but wow! <laughs> even if you stop to listen to the uh, to the theme song, the words on the theme song, it's it's not sad pleasant. Stuff. <laughs> it, it is it's a struggle. But again, like un, this would have been unheard of ten years earlier to even show Sorry. this kind of a thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, One day at a time. That's a sitcom that aired on CBS from December '75 through May '84. It starred Bonnie Franklin as a divorced mother raising two teenage daughters that were portrayed by Mackenzie Phillips and Val- Valerie Bertinelli. They lived in Indianapolis on the program. Uh, lots of new themes were explored here, including having a television show that takes place <laughs> in Indianapolis. Wow, no one would have ever thought of that. Also, we yeah, had, yeah, they, had to, they had to relax the code for that. Exactly, yeah. And, uh, 
We also have, uh, you know, the sleazy hero, Snyder. So Snyder. Yeah, ugh. Uh, I can the, smell it from here. It really, it's like cigarettes and stale beer. Is definitely the scent. <laughs> maybe, maybe a little bit of toilet water from uh, in the super. Uh, the Jeffersons is a sitcom that was broadcast on CBS from January 1975 through July 1985. This show focused on George and Louise Jefferson, played by Sherman Helmsley and Isabel Sanford a prosperous African-American couple who have been able to move from Queens to Manhattan owing to the success of George's dry cleaner chain. This was actually a legitimate spinoff, more of all in the family, George Jefferson's interactions with Archie Bunker being among the funniest in the first two or three seasons he's on uh, a handful of times each season. Uh, The second longest-running African-American family sitcom and the first to feature an interracial couple in Tom and Helen Willis, upstairs neighbors played by Franklin Cover and Roxy Roker. Also, the first television program to have sustained African-American characters that were wealthy. Hmm. Now, though not produced by Norman Lear, we'd be remiss not to mention The Mary Tyler Moore Show. This is a sitcom created by James L. Brooks and Alan Burns, which was aired on CBS from 1970 through 77. Uh, Its central character is a never-married, independent career woman, uh, portrayed of course, by Mary Tyler Moore, which was a rarity on television at the time. Uh, Mary Richards is a single woman who, at age 30, moves to Minneapolis on the heels of a broken engagement. She applies for a secretarial job at fictional television station WJM, but it's already taken. So she's instead offered the position of associate producer of the station's 6 o'clock news. Oh, that always happens, right? You go to get a, you go to get a job to give you a much better one. That's always always the way. That's how I've gotten every job. Uh, (laughs) That's how I became the uh, publisher of DC Comics. Right. Um, (laughs) I think it won a lottery or something. Yes. (laughs) Now, uh, with the rise of socially responsible programming, the uh, television western, a very popular genre in the 60s, slowly died out. First casualties among them were The High Chaparral and The Virginian. They were both staples of the NBC network. Uh, They both went away in the spring of 1971. Uh, Bonanza suffered a blow when actor Don Blocker died during surgery in 1972, and the show quietly ended its run the following year. CBS's Gunsmoke would manage to outlast them all and would finally end its run with a star-studded series finale in 1975. Yeah, that ran for something close to 20 years or something like that. Uh, 250 years, yeah. There you go. So, <laughs> uh, but now, it wasn't all socially conscious programming. There were also other things happening in the 70s. It was the me generation. There were discotheques that people were having a good time. So former head of CBS, uh, former CBS head of programming Fred Silverman defected to struggling ABC network in 1975 and started the trend of TV centered on sexual gratification and body humor in situations. Nickname Jiggle Television by NBC executive Paul Klein. Uh, beginning with that, and dubiously in that in category, I would say Charlie's Angels. That's a crime drama television series that aired on ABC from September 1976 to June 1981. Following the crime-fighting adventures of three women working in a private detective agency in Los Angeles, California, originally starring Kate Jackson, Farrah Fawcett, and Jacqueline Smith in the leading roles, with John Forsyth providing the voice of their boss, the unseen Charlie. The mm. show is sort of unfairly uncharacterized, uh, unfairly characterized as sexualized. At least, I think. Uh, the main sure. characters are really just pretty, is what it is. Although, they do wear kind of short shorts, don't they, from time to time? Well, uh, so, did the, so did the male star of a show we're going to talk about in a little while. You know what I mean? It wasn't just the ladies, <laughs> it's true. Uh, this was produced by Aaron Spelling, who produced the smash hit 1990s teen drama, 
Beverly Hills 90210. As well as the latest obsession at my house, Melrose Place. Oh, wow, you guys like are a, finally catching like, up, huh? <laughs> we finally uh, <laughs> given it a try, and I think we're on our third watch through of it now. We just we just hooked on it. Um, now we also have uh, Wonder Woman. Now that's a television series based on the DC Comics character. Uh, the show's first season aired on ABC in 1975 and was set in the 1940s during World War II. The second and third seasons aired on CBS and were set in the 70s, with the title changed to The New Adventures of Wonder Woman, and a complete change of cast other than Linda Carter as Wonder Woman and Lyle Wagoner as Steve Trevor, though he does go from senior to junior between those seasons. It makes sense. You know, we did jump sure. ahead like 30, he is, 40 he is years. Younger, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, now, Wonder Woman is wearing Wonder Woman's traditional bustier and hot pants costume, so enough said there. Yeah, she changes by spinning around. That's the jiggle television, my friends. Mm-hmm. And finally, one of my very, very favorite influential shows from my youth that I probably should not have been watching as young as I did <laughs> is The Three's Company. That was a sitcom aired on ABC from March 1977 to September 1984. This is based on a BBC sitcom, also Man About the House, that ran from 1973 to 1976. The story revolves around three single roommates, Janet Wood, played by Joyce DeWitt, Chrissy Snow, played by Suzanne Summers, and Jack Tripper, who was played by John Ritter, uh, who all live together platonically in a Santa Monica, California apartment complex. The landlord's moral attitudes, and there's two sets, but their moral attitudes are very similar, <laughs> uh, they cause Jack to pretend that he's gay, leading to many misunderstandings and hilarity. Uh, but despite being a jiggle show, it was kind of socially progressive at the time. Uh, showing the greatest generation's growing acceptance of some things, like homosexuality, while still rejecting other things, like unmarried men and women living together. So it was sort Mm -hmm. of right on that fence, although I am pretty sure Suzanne Somers never wore a bra on the show. So it definitely qualifies, and as you mentioned, John Ritter... He wore some short shorts. He wore some shorts that were so short that when... (laughs) when, Do you you know about this? When it was re-aired on Nick at Night, they discovered that there was a scene where you could... uh, See more than you no way. were supposed to, <laughs> uh, and it had aired like that for years, like literally for decades. It had aired like that, and now I think all subsequent airings, they I don't know, airbrushed it or re- <laughs> refocused the seat or something. But yeah, he kind of kind of slipped out over there. That's what happened. But anyway. <laughs> Now those are the, uh, the the programs we wanted to discuss as a as a show of how different the times were yeah. uh, becoming. It definitely led uh, to you know why welcome back Cotter was like suddenly we can have a show about a failing class in Brooklyn sure. in late seventies Brooklyn. Uh, yeah. I, I think there was also a and like as you mentioned, you cutting class and you know essentially shoplifting is all part of the show. And I think there was a, a fascination with a lot of America. Uh, to look at these crumbling cities, a lot of cities sure. were were in bad shape in the mid to late seventies, and I think there was sort of a a curious fast. It's like like same thing with Good Times. It was like yeah, uh, how the other half lives or whatever. But uh, interesting time, and that would all be wiped away in the eighties. It would all become family sitcoms for ten years. But that's for another comic book. <laughs> And another yes. day. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Uh, now, before we leave you today, we're going to cover a couple of pieces of mail. Uh, first one from uh, our friend Jeremiah, Jeremiah Jones Goldstein. Uh, he writes, Chris and Reggie, it's been a while since I sent an email, but after listening to the Uncle Scrooge episode today, I decided I could not wait any longer. That was the previous episode, number 89. Yes. Now, first of all, I want to say you did a great job with the Miracle Man Weird Comics History episodes. Thank you very much. We are very proud of those. Uh, he says, they were fantastic. 
I only knew a little bit of the history and thought you guys did a great job with it. All the back and forth between Gaiman and McFarlane was fascinating. The story uh, with what the publishing was with was like with Eclipse was something else. I cannot imagine trying to read the story as they were publishing it. If you remember, there were year-long delays. Big gaps, issues. yeah, between <laughs> issues. Uh, he continues, uh, I have to say that I agree with you about Marvel's release of the series. It could have been done so much better. So much better. I thought for sure that it was going to be a much bigger deal than it ended up being. I was glad to finally read the series and liked it very much. It was certainly worth it from that standpoint. One of the things that I thought they should have included in the backup materials was a history of the Marvel Man saga. They could have told that story and included the relevant materials instead of just publishing bits and pieces from the Mick Anglo series. I agree 100%. Uh, I've got one short story. The summer before Marvel released the series, I was at a Baltimore Comic-Con, and Alan Davis, Mark Buckingham, and someone else, I forget who, did a panel discussing, discussing Marvel Man. They didn't really talk too much about the trials and tribulations of the series, instead talked about the stuff they'd worked on and also mentioned that the story was finally to be completed, which got a huge round of applause, and I thought, great, I'll be able to read the whole thing at once and not have to wait all the years to get the whole story. Oh, well, I guess the rest is history. Yeah, yes, that didn't didn't happen that way, I guess. Uh, We're but, still waiting for the Silver Age. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, before we continue, though, thanks very much for that. And like I said, this was um, the Miracle Man, Marvel Man thing was Chris's labor for quite a long time. And <laughs> we see that uh, it's doing very well as far as people downloading it. So it is. glad you guys are digging it. It was uh, real rough and uh, yeah. for Chris to get through. So it's very much appreciated. Uh, Jeremiah continues, he says, as for Uncle Scrooge, this has to be one of my favorite subjects that you've covered and holds a special place in my life. When my brother and I were young, the first comics we read were the Whitman Disney comics. We read whatever we could get our hands on, but the Disney ducks were special. For one thing, they are some of the best comics ever published, in my opinion. Carl Barks was a true master. His stories can be enjoyed by anyone, young or old. The art was beautiful. When you were describing the panel with the dam bursting and the coins flying out, I could easily picture it in my mind. It was so, It is so memorable. I loved your discussion of the history of Western publishing, and I learned a ton. I have always wondered what the deal was with Western, Gold Key, Whitman, and Dell, and now I know. One of the reasons Uncle Scrooge and Carl Barks are so special to me is that it was my dad who got us into the Disney comics. He read them as a kid, and whenever we were with him, he would look through the, we looked through the spinner racks with us to look for Barks' issues. He could find the bag three packs. Uh, it was a great day. Then we'd all take turns reading issues we picked up. I still have these Whitman books. They are beat to hell and falling apart. We read them so much, but they're a treasure to me. When Gladstone took over the publishing, we started with issue number one. We'd get the Ed comics, and then when we visited our dad on weekends, he'd, we'd bring them with us, and he'd read the issues. He bought us a subscription to the comics, the only time I've ever had a comic subscription. You get the point. It was something my dad, brother, and I all shared. And uh, uh, also, my parents lived and worked in Poughkeepsie for several years, so they were very familiar with Western Dell Publishing. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, two last things, and I promise that'll be it. If you get the chance to check out the Carl Barks Library that Fantagraphi Fantagraphics is publishing, it is worth it. The Don Rosa one is also dynamite. But his, uh, his the topic for an, that, that's the topic for another email. Uh, these are high-quality volumes and very reasonably priced. The final thing is in regards to the comics IDW is publishing. This is a question that we had when we were covering it. He says yeah. they are not doing original stories. They're just reprinting the Disney stories from Europe, mm. most of which have never been published in the U.S. before. Sure, some of them are newer stories, but everything I've read so far is a reprint. Some are good and some aren't. 
mostly they don't measure up to the stuff I grew up with, with Barks, Rosa, Gyps, and some of the other greats. They're enjoyable enough, and I still read them. Anyway, thanks for the great work. Yeah, keep keep up the great work. I'll be listening. Yeah, thanks a lot, Jeremiah. We always love uh, hearing from you. And uh, you Absolutely. know, I, I, th- I think I mentioned when we did the Uncle Scrooge episode, we kind of didn't get into our too deep into our thoughts about it because it was a sixty-four page book, and we were kind of like, <laughs> uh, let's move move along. But I, you know, I have a similar experience in that you my do, father yeah. introduced me to Uncle Scrooge and Donald Duck, but. I guess we just have, you know, fathers and sons, different relationships, and because he was always so instructive, and uh, he just, he stripped all the fun out of him, you know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> what, 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 what he says here is true, and it's funny, doing that first comic, you don't really get a sense for Carl Barks' storytelling. Uh, they get, later on when he gets into a groove, they get, they're really cool, like, he really is having crazy adventures. Even that, you saw, like, there was more than just moving your money to a lake or to a reservoir. There was so much going on, like, sure. all the time. But, uh, again, I just got to reiterate in my mind, and, and it's got to be this, uh, you know, my problems with my dad, but I'm just like, but they're just Disney characters. You know, that's, <laughs> that's fine, but they're always, a, you know, like, to me, a good, a good Disney comic is when you can recognize that they all look like Disney characters. So, <laughs> good on them. Uh, and, you know, the story of Dan Rosa is, is also kind of a bittersweet story. Maybe if we go back to... Uh, some more Disney comics. We can mm-hmm. talk about him later. So, uh, anyway, I very much appreciate it. And I love hearing stories of people's comics fun sure. as, as the young sure. people. But we have one more uh, somber letter that we got last week. Mm-hmm. It says, Dear Cosmic Treadmill, I am Richard Moore, a senior personal assistant to late Edward Treadmill, oh. who shares the same last name as yours, who here in after shall be referred to as my boss, died as a result of a heart-related condition on March 12th, 2005. And we haven't known all this time, Chris. It's been years now. <laughs> His oh, heart condition... has been dead for a decade. <laughs> His heart condition was due to the death of all the members of his family in the tsunami disaster on the 26th December 2004 uh, tsunami in Sumatra, Indonesia. Just gets worse and worse. It's really, this is our poor Uncle Treadmill. Uh, I am contacting you to assist in claiming my late boss's funds because you have a same last name as with my late boss. My late boss has a deposit of $10 million, U.S. What? $10 million left behind. As the senior personal assistants, I have been mandated to provide to the, the next of kin to my late boss by the bank. All I need from you is total trust. Best regards, Richard Moore. Well, it's tough to hear about uh, Uncle Treadmill, Ed, Ed, Uncle Eddie Treadmill passing Uncle Eddie on Treadmill. Uh, so yeah. many years ago. But that $10 million bucks is sure going to help us get over it. Well, don't you think, I'm, Chris? I'm not sure I've processed it completely yet. This is <laughs> it's kind of tough. Um, to first find out you have an Uncle Treadmill. That's true. <laughs> and then find out he's been taken from us. Too soon, right, right away. Way too soon. Way too soon. I didn't even have a chance to uh, go and uh, you know sit on his lap or whatever. So never. Uh, I will say that when we got this, and we've gotten a couple other uh, spam emails lately. Uh, we we were like, wow, we're big enough now to get recognized by spam emails. <laughs> obviously, we're we're poking our heads above the, uh, the surface. World. Exactly. And now we're getting hit up by uh, con men and spammers. That's definitely something. <laughs> 
<clears throat> so uh yeah that that was fun hopefully we'll maybe yes. we'll have another one like that <laughs> but uh if you would like to con or spam us or you want to talk <laughs> to us about welcome back connor or television that became comic books or vice versa or any of the things that we touch on in this program or anything at all you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com hit us up on facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic tmail history Humble us on Tumblr at CosmicTmailHistory.tumblr.com. We're on Twitter at CosmicTmail, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. Go check out our weekly writings at WeirdScienceDCComics.com, and check out Chris's uh, personal daily writings at ChrisIsOnInfiniteEarths.com, where he reviews a different DC comic every day of the week, several hundred Days running now. What are we mm-hmm. at? Seven hundred. What is it? I don't even know where we are. Eight, eight thirty something. Eight thirty something. And this month yeah. you are doing uh, brightest May. Yes. Which is you going through the brightest day uh, series, which has been really cool for me personally because uh, I read it after the fact and seeing sure. it, seeing it picked apart issue to issue is uh, a lot more a lot more careful than I than I had been when I read it. <laughs> so it's I recommend it. Uh, folks that are interested in DC Comics or even like the recent history, like uh, what happened pre New Fifty Two, this is a great place yeah. to see exactly what was happening pre New Fifty Two. And I'm trying to comb the issues to see if I can pick out the exact spot where DC pulled the plug yeah, on their pre Flashpoint universe. I've cause... seen that. Like, what would they start to? You want to see where they like you know turned around, turned to turned to page or whatever and uh, yeah like we're okay we're this is the past we're done with it let's move forward i, yeah. I think uh, i think it'll be pretty telling if uh, if i can find that because from what we've heard dc was planning that for years right but, uh, yeah sure. now we hear that kind <laughs> of you, thing a lot you can check out the show blog weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com where we'll put our show notes uh every single week now That's i think right. we've we've got a pretty good streak running we do have a good uh, one. That's also where you put your box sets. Uh, the box sets every Thursday. We didn't have one this week because I haven't been able to figure uh, one that works. Another out. configuration of uh, yeah. episodes. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll keep working on that. Also, I like to mention that if you are looking to re- listen to our archives, you want to go to weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com. Yes. It's the only place you're going to find them ordered, you know, in Indeed. order. So that's where to go. Absolutely. Uh, you can find us on YouTube. Uh, just search Weird Comics History, all one word, no spaces. And uh, we're thinking about making thumbnails with a lot of red circles and arrows on them. Yeah. So we can uh, we can actually get people to click on them. Exactly. So that'll yeah. be a good thing to see. Yeah. We'll just, whatever the hottest news thing is, we'll be like, uh, you know, <laughs> SJW, Waffle House, uh, I don't know, Mine- yes. Minecraft, all that stuff will be in the title. <laughs> so we'll get plenty of views. Uh, also, just want to mention real quick that we are. Part of the uh, JL May uh, crossover, which we're we're doing uh, DC's Silver Age event from 2000. We'll be doing an episode in a couple of weeks for that, but it is going on right now. So search j- hashtag JL May, and you should find out more about it. And uh, we've also been trying to keep up with uh, retweeting and keeping abreast of it as we see it. Absolutely. But I think that's all we got from this week. Chris, got anything else for him? Um, you can hit us up on Twitter if you want to send condolences about our late uncle. Yes, um, that would be nice. Yeah, <laughs> we do ask that you don't send us money because I mean we just made ten million dollars. We don't need it. Give it, give it to it. it. Give it to uh, the treadmill fund, uh, the charity yeah. for yeah. for other treadmills. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Edward Treadmill uh, uh, College Scholarship. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Because uh, and when we're done here, I'm going to run up to the store, and I think I have to buy $500 worth of iPhone cards. I believe that's what they wanted, right? Yes, yeah, then, like we're good. then we're good. We'll be good. That's that's that, that's not much of an investment for $10 million, no, so that's fine. That's a, that's a, that's a <laughs> drop in the bucket. Yeah, so this might be our last episode, folks. We're rich, <laughs> so, but uh, <laughs> if that's all we got from this week, Chris, I'm going to tell everyone to keep it on the treadmill in front of a live studio audience. We're gonna have a TV party tonight. Alright! We're gonna have a TV party, alright! Tonight! We've got nothing better to do than watch TV and have a couple of brews. Everybody's gonna hang out here!